Welcome to the SCOTUS Blog Podcast. I'm Jason Harrow. Our guest on today's episode is Ken Bass, who is here to tell us why the Supreme Court has shown so much interest recently in intellectual property and patent law. Ken is a former law clerk of Justice Hugo Black, and he is now an attorney at the firm of Stern, Kessler, Goldstein, and Fox. Over the last 30 years, Ken has been involved in a wide array of patent and IP cases, including in this current Supreme Court term, where he is co-counsel for the respondent Teleflex in the patent case KSR against Teleflex, which is set for argument on November 28th. Now, here's Ken. Observers of the Supreme Court's docket have noticed that in the past several terms, there's been a marked increase in the number of intellectual property cases, particularly patent cases, that the court has accepted for review. It's a fascinating phenomenon, and to understand it, we need to go back in history a bit and follow the development of patent litigation in the Supreme Court. Back in the 1960s, when I clerked for Justice Black at the court, the Supreme Court had a history over the past several decades of significant involvement in patent cases. The reason for their involvement was that the regional circuits were frequently in conflict on patent law cases. And there was a widespread belief that some circuits were pro-patent and some circuits were anti-patent. Lawyers, of course, jockeyed to get their cases in the more favorable circuit. So the Supreme Court was called on on a number of occasions to resolve square conflicts among the circuits on issues of patent law. I know from Justice Black's discussions with me, and I know from hearing from other law clerks at the time, that a number of the justices felt a little uncomfortable in dealing with patent cases at that time. Patent law is a very specialized area of law. Indeed, to some of us, patent law until we do it seems very arcane and difficult to understand. Justices are lawyers, too, and several justices felt that patent cases were not as familiar, were not as easy, were not as comfortable as constitutional law cases, for example. The patent bar at that time also felt dissatisfaction with the Supreme Court's involvement, thinking that often the court really didn't understand patent law and that the results of the cases were not good for the development of the body of law. Those factors, plus some other institutional considerations, led in 1982 to the formation of the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, a unique federal appellate court in our system. It's a court with national jurisdiction. It hears all the patent appeals, or at least it was intended to, from all of the district courts throughout the United States. In order to prevent that court from becoming too specialized, too narrow, and tunnel-visioned in its approach to patent law, Congress intentionally gave the court a docket of other non-patent cases to keep them as close to a generalist court as we could. That experiment started in 1982. It's continued until today. And for the first 10, 15 years of that court's existence, the Supreme Court, gratefully, I think, accepted the new system and deferred to the Federal Circuit, letting the Federal Circuit develop the body of patent law cases. In recent years, that's changed dramatically. For example, in 1996, the Supreme Court took and decided the Markman case. That case involved the constitutional issue of whether construing a patent's claims was an issue for the judge or was committed to the jury under the Seventh Amendment. 
And it's understandable the court took that case because it was a constitutional holding. More recently, the court has taken cases that do not involve constitutional issues at all. But there's a second area of concern that's apparent in the court's actions. As I noted, the Federal Circuit was intended to become not a super specialized court with tunnel vision, but a generalist court like the other federal courts of appeals. There have been some recent cases taken by the Supreme Court where the issue really is, is the Federal Circuit applying the same general federal law principles that the regional circuits are? And you have cases in that area like the Vornado case several years ago, which dealt with the construction of the common jurisdictional phrase arising under. The Federal Circuit was deemed to have been out of sync with the regional circuits in that case, and they were reversed. You have a case pending before the court now, the Metamune versus Genentech case, in which we're involved as amicus counsel. And in that case, the issue is both a constitutional and a consistent with federal precedent issue. It involves case or controversy. It involves whether a licensee to a patent who is in good standing and paying royalty fees can bring a validity challenge in a declaratory judgment context or whether that is, as the Federal Circuit has found, no case in controversy and therefore no standing and therefore no constitutional jurisdiction. The Supreme Court's heard arguments and will decide that case this coming term. Beyond these issues of constitutional law and consistency with other federal courts of appeals, there's also an area that is, if you will, pure policy. The best example that's already been decided years ago is the Festo case, heard by the Supreme Court, decided in 2002. The issue in that case really dealt with the effect that an amendment during the prosecution of a patent application had on the ability of the patentee to enforce the patent against products that did not literally infringe because they didn't have every precise element of the claim in them, but infringe nonetheless under a doctrine known as the doctrine of equivalence. That is, close enough for government work, if you will, cases of infringement. And Festo considered and ultimately decided how much those amendments affected, narrowed, and limited the patentee's ability to seek a judgment under a doctrine of equivalence. That was really a pure policy issue. It involved judge-made law. It really didn't involve any statutory construction. And it's an issue which one might have thought would have been left to the Federal Circuit. But there was enough concern with the absolute bright-line rule the Federal Circuit developed to call into question the validity of that rule, its consistency with pre-Federal Circuit Supreme Court case law, and led to the Court's involvement. The same sort of consideration is before the Court this term in the KSR versus Teleflex case, in which we are co-counsel with Tom Goldstein for Teleflex, the respondent. It's a fundamental issue of patent law, perhaps, well, unquestionably, the most important patent law case to come before the Supreme Court in the past 40 years. It really goes back to revisit a pre-Federal Circuit decision, Graham versus John Deere, a 1966 case, in which the Supreme Court considered the basic issue of how much creativity does an invention have to have in order to be patentable. 
it's to some extent a statutory construction issue because there's a, a code provision in the patent code that says that you can't get a patent for something that is new if it is obvious to one of ordinary skill in the art. There's no statutory definition of obviousness, and the development of that area was left to the courts. It had been in the courts since the early 19th century in the Hotchkiss case from the Supreme Court. But it's back before the court now. It's drawn the attention of more than 40 amicus briefs. It is a fundamental decision that will affect how many patents are issued, as well as affecting how many patents already issued will survive litigation challenges. But it is essentially purely a policy issue. There is no bright line guidance from Congress on what obviousness means. There's a delegation to the courts to develop it through case law. And the Federal Circuit has done that along with its predecessor court, the Court of Customs and Patent Appeals. And that case law and the development of the current test is now under attack by a wide segment of interested parties and defended by a wide segment of interested parties. The issue being, is it the right test? Does it achieve the right balance? I think the Supreme Court's interest in the area largely reflects two trends. The first is the increasing importance to the national economy of intellectual property. Some say intellectual property is the only product or service that the United States has a competitive edge in in today's flat world. The second consideration gets to institutional issues. Practitioners who seek cert before the court and who know patent law have successfully argued in a number of cases over the past several terms that the Federal Circuit is off the reservation, that the Federal Circuit is either not following Supreme Court law or is not deciding cases consistently with the other regional circuits. Those arguments have gained some traction in the Supreme Court and have led the court to grant review in a handful of cases. The combination of these two effects is, in my judgment, the explanation for why we have more patent cases before the court than we've seen in previous years. Now, it may also be that there are a couple of justices sitting on the court today who have a particular personal knowledge, background, or interest in intellectual property law. Those individual justices alone aren't enough to get four votes, but they may be enough to persuade other colleagues to go along in granting cert and then deciding what are objectively some of the most challenging intellectual issues to be presented to the Supreme Court. Stay tuned. Watch the court. It's going to continue, I think, to be a significant player in the patent reform area, and their decisions will affect what all of us in intellectual property fields do on a daily basis. Thank you for your attention. Good day.